The 2022 French presidential elections were recently the center of media focus in Europe, and a break from the consistent coverage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This remains no surprise as the election, the first round being held on April 10th and the second round being held on April 24th, had far-reaching implications and potential consequences. After the first round, the runoff was a rematch of the 2017 election between President Emmanuel Macron and Marie Le Pen, each presenting starkly different visions for the future of France. The world watched with bated breath as Macron eventually sealed the victory, but the election was closer than in 2017. So as it stands, what are the implications of this election, and how does it affect the world at large? From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in France today is Kieran Buzonson. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Joshua Axton. Hi, Joshua. Hey, Drew. It's great to be on today. Thanks for coming on, Joshua. All right, guys. I want to first start off and get into the background of the French elections and also acknowledge that the French elections, especially presidentially, are structured differently to the United States. So I'll go to you first, Kieran, and ask, how are the French elections structured? Yeah, sure. So the French elections work very differently from uh, in the United States. We don't in France. There's no electoral college, right? So it's actually a direct election system. Functionally, the French presidential election occurs every five years. So that's the presidential term, and it occurs in two rounds that are spaced out by a week. Um, so it's a runoff system. So you have a giant pool of candidates who are all, you know, the primary candidates of each of their individual parties participating in the first round, and then it weeds out all the candidates except for the top two contenders who then go on to the second round where the president is then decided a week later. So it operates similar to, I guess, uh, the best comparison for the American system is that the first round acts as sort of a primary to get to the top two candidates in the runoff. Correct. Okay. So I talked about Le Pen and Macron in the intro, but the story of this election is a lot more than just those two candidates. So who were the candidates running in that first round? Yeah, so just briefly to touch on the major candidates and, and their you know political backgrounds, you have Emmanuel Macron, who is center-left candidate, Marine Le Pen, who's a very traditional kind of far-right candidate in France. Um, her family has been running for president for quite some time. And then kind of, I think, the center of the story is a socialist candidate or technically left party candidate called uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And then you also have another far right candidate called Eric Zemmour. And then two minor candidates who are of less importance, but we will actually touch on later. Valérie Pécresse, who is part of the traditional Gaulle party that ruled France for decades, actually, after the post-World War II era. And Yannick Jadot, who is kind of a traditional Green Party candidate. And you mentioned those two last candidates, just to follow up, are, as in those are tr- like traditional parties that have long-standing in French politics? I mean, the Greens have been president, or present in European politics in general, including French politics, for quite some time during the Cold War, but particularly Valérie Pécresse, who is part of the uh, Les Républicains. The, it's the mm-hmm. traditional party of de Gaulle, who was a huge formative figure mm-hmm. in France during the Cold War. And that has been in power on and off for much of France's history since World War II. Only really re- recently have they waned off. And how they performed in this election, I think, is a, is a critical part of the story. Showing a really both complicated and just a multipolar kind of situation in French politics. Um, how long is the term of the French president? Is it the same to the United States for, or is it different? How so it's a five-year term, um, and much like the United States traditionally, most French, French presidents serve about two terms, though it's not limited to two terms. 
as a follow-up to that, do you think French presidents, uh, when speaking about especially Macron and foreign policy looking to the future, are they able to get more accomplished on average because they have a longer time? I think it is a little bit better than the U.S. presidential term in that in the U.S. presidential term, the first two years, really actually the first 100 days is when a president has time to get things done before deadlock sets in in Congress. You have midterms halfway through the presidency and the rest gets tanked. And that second half of the presidency in the U.S. is really spent just campaigning functionally. I think the French presidential term has a little more space to, to focus on foreign policy, but I think even more so than that is the role of the French president as compared to the U.S. president. The U.S. president is invested with a lot more responsibility, power, and the French president is actually a little more concerned with foreign affairs rather than domestic ones, though they're, of course, they're concerned with that as well. I, I think looking at foreign affairs, particularly, the French president has a lot more authority than an American president. Mm-hmm. When you have American presidents looking to sign on to treaties, join organizations, and such, you require Senate ratification. The French president doesn't really have this hurdle and in a lot of ways able to act unilaterally. So in that way, they are able to accomplish a decent amount and have more jurisdiction over foreign affairs, which has been, Macron seemed to portray that as a key part of his re-election campaign with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is also a rematch of the 2017 election. So what are your thoughts on how this tur- how this election turned out to the previous one, Kier? I mean, you know, it was a blowout again. Clean Pen is still a kind of a non-starter for a lot of French people because she her she comes from a kind of a problematic background personally as well as her father who was a known anti-Semite and racist. <laughs> um, also the founder of Front National, which it was recently be rebranded by Marine Le Pen in an effort to kind of distance itself from that past to the uh, Rassemblement National, which is what, you know, performed in this election. In some ways, it's a rematch, but because the coalitions in France have shifted so much kind of under these two candidates, it's hard to say, um, especially with the large abstention rate. Would you say that similar to democracies across the Western world to a certain extent, it was for the French people two candidates that they didn't like either one, so a lot of people just held their nose and picked one? Yeah, unfortunately, I think, as is the trend, you know, that's sort of in the U.S. where you kind of have this nihilistic electoral politics Mm -hmm. where you kind of have to choose the lesser of two evils. Um, That's very much been the case in this election. It was the case in the the 2017 election, but this one in particular, a lot of people just kind of had to suck it up and vote for Le Pen. But there's kind of another dynamic that we'll get to with, you know, Macron voters, not a lot of them actually like him, but they prefer him over Le Pen. And so how they're going to vote in the parliamentary elections for the lower house of the French government is actually going to be probably contrary uh, to their votes in the presidential election. I think you bring up a good point here, and I do want to go into that of like the makeup of the French government, because the election is not the end of the story. Yeah, correct. So the French government has a two-house system as well. So again, three branches, just like the U.S., you have an executive, legislative, and judicial. The legislative branch of the French government is comprised of two houses. You have the Senate or the Senate. Um, just like in the United States. And then you have the Assemblée Nationale, which is the National Assembly in the lower house um, with, I think, 577 seats um, or so. Those are five-year terms, actually, just like the president, right? So those elections are usually within the same cycle as the presidential election, and they're occurring June 12th this year. So a lot of dissatisfied voters who were, frankly, upset <laughs> and without not without reason of the choice that they were given in the second round for the presidential election are actually calling for a, quote, third round in these parliamentary elections to elect against <laughs> Macron to kind of uh, subdue his agenda, even though that they even though they hated Le Pen more. And then so in a sense, Macron, despite winning the election, is going to find a very hard time or at least there's going to be a struggle to find a way to unite his government, a coalition that allows him to actually carry out any effective action? Yeah, from a practical perspective, I mean, it was a very pyrrhic victory. On, on the one hand, it was sort of a blowout. You know, he won 58 percent of the vote. 
but you know, I mean, the the abstention rate and the way a lot of people I think are going to vote in the parliamentary elections because his economic policies in France are extremely unpopular. He's kind of your archetypal um, neoliberal, right? He wants to raise the the retirement age in France, which is a huge non-starter for a lot of French people, as well as kind of reduce social spending, which are time-honored traditions in in France at this point. And the other thing is the uh, National Assembly in in France actually has the power to revoke the prime minister who is actually appointed by the president. So Macron mm-hmm. can appoint a prime minister and then the lower house, depending on how these elections go, can just keep revoking mm-hmm. that person from power yeah. and you know, basically sabotaging his domestic agenda. Yeah. So you mentioned the prime minister. What is the role of the prime minister? You said the fr- president appoints it, but what is his role within the government? Yeah, so essentially he's kind of like the speaker of the house a little bit in, in the United States where they set kind of the policy agenda. What, what's going to be debated, what they're going to cover in government today, what's going to be voted on essentially. It's been kind of a, a role that's been rather turbulent in French politics. You know, anytime French people or or parliament members are dissatisfied with the president or want a different candidate, they will basically just keep removing the prime minister until they get what they want. I want to turn this away from a domestic perspective for a moment, just to turn to a foreign policy perspective, because Kieran mentioned, Joshua, that Macron has made himself a politician of the center, a neoliberal background and things. But what has his foreign policy consisted of outside of France and from when he was elected in 2017 to the present day? So in a lot of ways, Macron has been more of the same for France. But in a lot of of ways, he's tried to take more of a leadership role. So we see with the retirement of Angela Merkel, there's kind of this gaping hole in European leadership in terms of she used to be kind of the woman who ran the EU. And, you know, France definitely played a part in that, but now it's kind of his mantle to take on. Looking at leaders across Europe, you know, Britain's out of it with Brexit, but Italy has a new prime minister, Germany has a new chancellor. And so he's taking this leadership role within Europe in terms of the EU, looking at the European interpretation of NATO as well, and has taken a hard anti-Russian stance. Mm-hmm. As in supporting Ukraine during the Russian invasion or just in general an anti-Russian stance? Particularly mm-hmm. against Russia in the Ukraine sense because he's been very much trying to support Ukraine. He's called for the ending of reliance upon European energy and such. But going with that, he's also a big proponent of active communication. So among any European leaders, even before the Ukraine war, and particularly since the Ukraine war, he's tried to keep an open line of communication with Putin. And would that be in the sense of like personal phone calls that just talking with Putin, trying to urge him to de-escalate? Absolutely. Um, so he's he's tried to establish a personal relationship with Putin to take that European leadership role. And so he thinks that by keeping at least open communication, there's a much greater possibility of achieving peace than if we just simply shut out Putin and prevent all talks from happening. So you mentioned he is a supporter of uh, the European Union and is trying to step into what he saw as a leadership void after Chancellor Merkel left office. What is his position on NATO to a certain extent? Well, this is kind of changed. So this is we're going into his second term now. In 2017, Macron can be quoted saying NATO is brain dead, which is obviously very, very hostile towards NATO. But since then, his move towards more working with it, but also been in support of an EU army of sorts. This hasn't made any progress since, I believe, the the 80s, but this is something that he as not necessarily anti-American, but not nearly as pro-American as a lot of Europe is, 
would be interested in making steps towards. So would you say that he has taken steps towards not disavowing like the notion of NATO, but more moving towards a sense that Europe should be able to protect itself without relying on the American military for help in anything? Yeah, and we talked a little bit about de Gaulle's ruling party since the Second World War and how that used to be a huge influence. And de Gaulle, since World War II, is probably France's most influential figure. And going with this, during the Cold War particularly, de Gaulle believed in kind of balancing out the two blocks of Russia and the U.S. And so since then, he's take, Macron has been seen as like the new de Gaulle. And so it's, you know, not necessarily Russia anymore. We live in a multipolar world. But trying to make Europe into this third block in ways and unify them under French leadership. Yeah. And de Gaulle himself, if I remember correctly, actually withdrew France from NATO during his term. Yes. Um, do you have anything to add on to that, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this as a person who also is a French citizen. You know, there's this traditional lane for France um, that I think manifests in Macron's policy toward an EU and you know an EU army and, and their involvement in NATO. On the one hand, you have the traditional Gaullist strain of strategic autonomy, right? The the French military traditionally has only sourced equipment from within its own borders, so the supply lines are entirely within France, and so they try not to rely on foreign supply lines. The same actually as the U.S. Um, as a as a strategic imperative but also as strategic autonomy within the NATO command structure. You know, France has often not been in the unified command structure for actually most of NATO's existence to pursue its in, it basically an independent action operationally uh, for the French army. The other thing is actually a much older historical trend, which a lot of French people will kind of tell you about. It's just part of the ethos um, of the French people, which is France is a historical continental European power. In the way that the British were, you know, a historical insular Western European power that was on the islands and as well kind of off around the globe, France's power base was traditionally in Europe and, and on the continent, right? So in, in some ways, I actually see it as a continuation of this old trend of, trying, of France trying to reassert its, its influence on the European continent, where it has traditionally exerted that influence. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about Macron's foreign policy, not just within Europe and handling the Russian invasion, but outside of Europe. So is there anything in particular that is striking about his foreign policy outside the continent? Certainly. So one of the biggest areas that Macron's made a difference from his predecessors is in West Africa. So he's made much greater concessions than his predecessors have. Among those are returning stolen artifacts of cultural significance from the colonial era, particularly, again, West Africa. He's flown to Rwanda to acknowledge French failures because during the Rwandan genocide, the government which committed it was in fact a French ally and they were one of the key roadblocks from the global community accomplishing anything to prevent that. Within that, he's also publicly stated that he's willing to reform the CFA franc. The CFA franc is a currency used by a lot of francophone countries and is tied to the euro through French guarantees. It's been criticized with having neocolonial claims as a mechanism to control African economies in West Africa. But on the other hand, France has said this is to provide stability within the region and provide economic strength. He's also hosted civil society and youth and cultural figures within the France-Africa summit instead of the traditional presidential guests. So instead of trying to court you know, political figures within West Africa, he's tried to reach into civil society and people that won't necessarily attain political power, but are able to make a difference through grassroots movements. He's, at the same time, maintained France's military position in West Africa. So currently they have over 5,000 troops deployed and regularly sustained casualties to jihadists, which has started to become kind of a controversial French opinion of like, do we stay there? Do we not? Because... 
democracies don't like casualties. You know, it's these servicemen are dying, and what's the benefit that we're getting out of it? So it's also become more and more unpopular within West Africa. Locals typically have expressed that, you know, France is seen as this big, powerful, high-tech military, but they're not able to get results. And if you're not able to get results, then kind of move out of the way and let locals deal with it the way that they want to. Uh, most recently, a French convoy was blocked by protesters when it was going across Niger and Burkina Faso. He's also most critically known in 2019, where after a helicopter crash in Mali, Macron demanded that West African leaders come to France for an emergency summit, despite the fact that Mali and Niger sustained way higher casualties. And in the end, he ended up going to Niger and paying respects to dead Nigerian servicemen at cemeteries and such. But until then, it was a huge diplomatic blunder on his part. And it's important to note how Macron carries himself in diplomatic circles. He's a very confident individual, but in many ways, this can be poorly translated into colonial arrogance. Yeah. So in a way, he's trying to grapple uh, with the legacy of colonialism, especially with his policies, the France and West and North Africa, and acting as a very confident, self-assured can be off-putting to those countries that he's trying to work with to a certain extent. Do you have something to add on to that, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, just really quickly for, for our listeners, I think the best lens for people in the United States to interpret this is, you know, the larger war on terror, right? Think of, think of the U.S.'s experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, actually also in West Africa, where we are also involved as well, have yeah. helping the French. This is kind of France's experience of that larger project of microcosm. I also want to direct attention to his main opponent in the runoff to the election because she has had an influence, or at least her name has been broadcast in French media and coverage of the French election outside of France, and Marie, Marie Le Pen. So where would you say, you mentioned earlier, Kieran, that Le Pen lies in the far right on the political spectrum, but you also mentioned that she has a political dynasty. Uh, can you go more into the background on that? Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of a brief biographical description of Marine Le Pen. You know, she's the leader of the Rassemblement National, which is, you know, the, France's principal far-right party, it's kind of the, the lightning rod of which, you know, around which the cultural and um, economic right of, of French politics kind of are galvanized. It's actually a rebranding re of uh, the Front National, which was the, for the longest time, uh, her father's party. It was founded by him, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was a really unpopular, generally speaking, uh, ultra-right politician. Some, you know, Biographical hits on his part include Holocaust denial and being a generally you know, unpleasant anti-Semitic and, and racist mm -hmm. person, which most people in France actually are, are very well aware of and have rejected him soundly. He actually stepped down in the 2010s and she, you know, her, her, his daughter, Marine Le Pen, uh, took over. And then, so this rebranding was kind of an effort to distance it from her father to make it seem more moderate. She moved slightly to the left on culture, but not, you know, by all that much um, in order to accommodate a slightly larger electorate. Kieran, I see in many ways a parallel of sorts. It's not it's not entirely accurate, but what would you say to the statement that Le Pen is to France what Trump has been to America in a lot of ways? I think a more accurate comparison, if you want if you want to look for a Trump-like figure in France, a better person to point to would be uh, Eric Zemmour, who is also actually a TV figure and actually farther right than Le Pen on cultural issues in particular. I think unlike Trump, well, it's not it's not a completely unapt comparison. I I, I think 
Le Pen actually is a little bit farther right than Trump on some respects, you know, li literally talking about deporting immigrants, full, you know, hijab bans uh, within France, etc. But she does share some of the characteristics where in France, right, generally speaking, the entirety of the French political system is farther to the left by default on economic issues than we are in the United States. That she has a little bit in comparison with Trump, who was culturally to the right, but at least in 2016 was initially somewhat economically to the left. Mm -hmm. I think another part of the lead up into the election, Kieran, was the her position on Ukraine and Russia mm -hmm. are particularly supposed ties to Russia or at least her party, which led to a lot of international coverage of the election. What do you what would you say about that? Yeah, I mean, she's at the best kind of indifferent. She has some ties with Russia that Macron eviscerated her on live television for, which were ties particularly to Russian banks getting a lot of her campaign loans and funding. But, as, you know, essentially she is not entirely, she doesn't entirely disapprove of Putin's cultural regime that he's, that he's had in Russia as far as moving to the right, this more traditionalist camp of culture. As far as wars of conquest like in Ukraine go, she's indifferent, which in my opinion, it's not, you know, total agreement, but she, she really ought to say something more. Do you have anything to say as well on that? Her position on Ukraine, I mean, I have that she, she received a 9 million euro loan yeah. directly from a bank that has been cited as with extensive and undeniable links to the Kremlin. And as you said, she got eviscerated on live television by Macron for that. Overall, she was very much in support of Russia before the Ukrainian war happens. And as that, she's kind of had to take a more hostile stance towards Russia. But again, as you said, it's, it's very indifferent. And after the Ukrainian war, she's talked about strategic reproachment with Russia, mm -hmm. which means she wants to become very friendly with Putin as seeing someone who could be a potential even, not, I wouldn't say ally, but a friend on the European continent in terms of partnerships and taking a more Eurocentric view. Yeah, I mean, like for me, like when I watch interviews with her talking about this particular question, right, she's pretty quick to avoid and evade and get off topic. Um, she, it doesn't seem like she has that much of a substantive position on whether or not France ought to be supporting Ukraine. She has been critical of NATO expansionism in, in, in the East, which is also a, a critique she shares with Vladimir Putin in particular. But, you know, I mean, she's been pretty flaky on this issue. She's been flaky. It's oh. it's not her issue to, to try and win an election on, no. for sure. It was very awkward for her when she was pro-Russia initially campaigning, and then the Ukrainian war happens. Um, she's been stated as being opposed to taking in Ukrainian refugees, even. So, definitely something that um, she is probably not against, or she is set against most of the French public, to a certain extent. Uh, looking at the results and reactions to the election, the aftermath, because Macron did defeat Le Pen in this, but the work is not done yet, correct, of, like, Kieran, you mentioned earlier that Macron now has the hard duty of trying to form a coalition in the government, in the National Assembly, correct? Correct, and I don't think anyone wants to form a coalition with them, <laughs> uh, you know, to, to be frank. Obviously, all the far-right voters are already galvanized against him. France has long rejected, at this point, his economic policies, and so particularly the French left has been really enraged by Macron, not just for the economic policies, but him actually moving a little bit to the right on culture to accommodate, actually, some mm -hmm. of the people in the Pen's camp, at least as an attempted buffer, which really mm -hmm. didn't work in this election. So... But, but besides the obvious like uh, political problems he's going to face domestically, would you consider the re-election of Macron a victory for NATO and the EU in general? 
I suppose definitely for the EU, you know, he's a huge advocate of the EU. I think he's from the more moderate strain of that kind of of that Gaullist policy toward NATO, in which he will probably pursue a, a degree of strategic autonomy. It's just the traditional lane for French foreign policy at this point, and he doesn't really diverge all that much from it. That being said, he's not a total NATO skeptic like Marine Le Pen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking at the election in terms of what could have been the alternative for NATO and the EU, this is a massive victory. In terms of the EU, you know, this is something that Le Pen was very, very against so many core EU ideas that it almost would have been incompatible for her to implement her domestic policy fully and still have some compatibility with the bottom line of the EU in terms of immigration, in terms of some economic policies. So going forward, Macron has kind of outlined a plan of sorts that he wants to implement. Currently, France has the EU presidency. And so looking at this, he wants to reform the Chichen zone, which is the freedom of movement within the EU. He's looking at implementing more of a social model within Europe. So talking about hosting summits, changing the EU budget away from the traditional 3% deficit to account for inflation, implementing a carbon tax, these are all things that he wants to get done, but we will see within his term. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, with his struggles probably to form a government domestically, he will be looking increasingly abroad to see what he can do abroad. What effect will this election have on the situation in Ukraine? Macron is still, of course, trying to keep in contact with Vladimir Putin. Do you think that has any profound effect on the situation there? I mean, functionally, I mean, within within NATO and the West, he's being the most dogged in terms of shuttle diplomacy and actively trying to sustain a conversation from the outset of, of the crisis. So I think that is generally a, a positive impact. You know, the more attempts at peace that there are, the more likely peace is to break out, right? As far as weapons are concerned, you know, I'm, I'm sure France will probably increase some of its monetary and, and, and arms aid. Okay. I think we're getting towards the end of the show, guys. I just have like two kind of final wrap-up questions because we kind of already covered where we think France could be going domestically and foreign policy-wise. Do you think this election, both of you, signals like a greater discontent within French democracy towards like the political system in a certain sense? I mean, I, I think despite the headlines of Macron winning, you know, with a 58% of the vote, people need to understand that this is a watershed moment in French electoral politics, particularly within like the last 30, 40 years. The coalitions have completely shifted. In the first round, much more than 50% of the electorate voted for non-establishment or mainstream candidates. And the abstention rate was 28%. That was the involuntary abstention rate. France actually have an official one called Blancanude, where you can literally vote to abstain, which also saw a huge you know, uptick. So it's, it's, it's a huge shift in French politics that I think is disguised by a lot of the big headlines. Yeah, I'd like to echo my colleague in terms of, yes, 50%, particularly for Americans, is like, oh my gosh, he beat her by so much. But it signals that we're probably going to be moving in a different direction after Macron, depending on how the momentum is going to continue or if it stops here. And in a sense, there's still candidates that are like Le Pen will still be around. And then you mentioned other candidates, even far left candidates of both on the right and on the left and the support for those growing potentially within France. So this has been a great discussion. Kieran Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. No, thank you for having me, Drew. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Annie Hebel. Hi, Annie. Hi, Drew. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. So what headlines do you have for us this week? 
So there have been many really important events going on this week. One of the biggest stories comes out of the U.S. with the leaking of the opinion brief on Roe v. Wade. There have also been numerous attacks on mosques throughout Afghanistan, and there's a state of emergency in Ecuador. Some very important topics to cover today. Let's begin with the recent leak from the Supreme Court. Absolutely. So Politico has leaked the first draft of a majority opinion brief by the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 decision declaring abortion bans unconstitutional. If the decision stands, it will turn the question of abortion legality back to individual states, almost half of which are poised to limit abortion very quickly. This leak is notable as it is the first time in modern Supreme Court history that an opinion draft has leaked. The Supreme Court is actively investigating it. The final decision is expected to be released in the next two months. An issue that continues to divide many Americans and an incident that will definitely stay within the public conscience. And you mentioned attacks in Afghanistan? Yes. So at least 10 people were killed and 30 wounded in an attack at a Kabul mosque last Friday, with many more feared dead from the blast. The attack was one of several that have taken place over the last two weeks across Afghanistan, largely targeting the Hazara Shia community. While no group has claimed responsibility for the most recent attack, most have been claimed by ISIS Khorasan, an ISIS-affiliated and Taliban rival group. We can only hope that there are fewer attacks like this in the future in a nation that has experienced a lot of violence already. And you mentioned what's going on in Ecuador? Yes. So Ecuador has declared a state of emergency in three provinces in response to an increase in gang violence. The emergency order will see a curfew established and additional troops sent to the regions to enforce peace and order, according to Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso. Lasso's government blames drug trafficking groups using the country as a transport spot for the uptick in violent crime. Thank you so much for coming on, Annie. Now that is all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in to our last episode of the semester, and be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows in the next few semesters. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rukulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Scene Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>